This is The Guardian. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. It's a Europod. Barca top of La Liga coming back from two goals down to win in the last 10 minutes at the weekend while Real suffer their first defeat at the hands of Atleti. My Girona sits second. We'll find out who they are and get the latest on the Spanish women's team. In Italy, Inter have a 100% record, closely followed by their rivals, Milan. There's a wonderful Juventus own goal to discuss. And Jose, just one win for Roma. Is it too cliche to ask if the wheels are starting to come off? Are PSG worryingly good now? Do Marseille Ultras have too much power? Actual fireworks are Ajax mean their game's abandoned. We get the chance to ask Sid about Bournemouth, discuss players missing flights to get coffee, take your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, uh, Philippe Beauclair, how are you? I'm very well. Good morning, Max. Yeah. Ah, bonjour, ça va. Barry Denning, hello. Hi, Max. The usual Europod caveat. I've no idea why I'm here, but hopefully I'll have a nice time. <laughs> <laughs> well, the same goes for everyone, really, in life, don't they? Uh, Nikki Bandini, hello. Morning. And hello, Sid Lowe. Morning. I believe he's bothered to hang around for the whole thing today, Sid. It's extraordinary. Uh, that's my understanding, yes. Wow, I, I see. It's a bit Sky Sports <laughs> news. My, my sources understand. I'm hearing that Sid Lowe is interested in being here for the whole pod. Sid sources tell me. Does this mean you read it on Twitter? That's usually yeah, exactly, what yeah. <laughs> Anyway, let's see, Barry, it was worth you being here. You said something. Well done. Um, let's start with you, Sid, just in, ta- in case you do bugger off. Uh, uh, Barcelona are top, beat Celta Vigo 3-2 at the weekend, 2-0 down with 10 minutes to go. That was a, that was a fun comeback, wasn't it? Yeah, 2-0 down, 8 minutes to go. Not playing particularly well. I mean, they created a few chances and, and possibly needn't have been in a position where they were two down, nil down. And then the response was, was brilliant. And one of the things that makes the response so interesting from a Barcelona point of view is that the two men who really led it were the, were the two jowls, as they're talking about now, because, of course, they both came at the same time, the final day of the window. They both have the same name. They're both from the same place. And they, they've been bundled together as this package. And actually, together, they've made a really, really big difference to Barcelona Admittedly, it's a bit early to, to, to make kind of decisive judgments on this, but they've made a really big difference. Barca scored 13 goals in the last three games now. They came back, scored three um, against Celta, and the, the three goals are brilliant. All of them really, really well made. The, the, the final pass in all three cases is, is superb, and, and, and it was a really, really good comeback. I think there's an obvious explanation for why this happened, though. Celta are 2-0 up, and Rafa Benitez decides to take off Iago Aspas. Never take off Iago Aspas. Do you know what? I thought that was Rafa Benitez, but I thought, well, it can't be Rafa Benitez. I just sort of, you know, just sort of panned across. I just thought it was somebody who looked a bit like Rafa Benitez. Um, But you're right about um, Jao Felix, or both of them, but that little dink sort of scoop to Lewandowski for the first goal is great. And it it feels like, and I'm going off those highlights and and the Antwerp game, that, that 
he is sort of finally in the right place. Yeah, and he there's a, there's a phrase um, from him the other day which was, "I needed a change. I'm happy now." And I suppose, in a way, all the rest of the analysis just kind of ends up being reduced to that particular line. Someone who who wasn't happy at Atletico Madrid for all sorts of reasons, not just about the style of football, but I think we're going to now get this kind of inevitable debate about how this is Simeone's fault because Atletico weren't expansive enough and it wasn't the right place for him. You listen to some of Jao Felix's teammates talk about him and it's fair to say there's not a huge amount of warmth. I say his former teammates, rather, his Atletico Madrid ones. And I think there is a, a, a recognition really made quite public from them that he maybe didn't always do his part, but there's no doubt that they needed a solution of some sort. He needed to go somewhere else. I must admit, I had my doubts that it would work. I had my doubts that it made very much sense in economic terms. In fact, it didn't make much sense in economic terms, which of course is why he went on loan and they needed to, to, to kind of mess around with his salary a little bit to be able to, to, be able to do that. Um, but it's worked really well. And, and it's worked well, I think, partly because it's just for him, it's a fresh start, I suppose. There's a nice line from Jorge Vallano this weekend. He said, every single time Jao Felix scores now, it will come with a hint of revenge. And I think that's true. And that's partly, obviously, what drives him. It's not the only thing, but I think that's part of it. But I think the happiness is it. And, and also that role where he's now being given a role which is nominally on the left side of a front three. But because you've got a fullback bombing up and down the left wing, it actually means he's coming inside. And he's basically playing off Lewandowski as a number 10. And as you say, Max, the pass was brilliant. And it looks like Lewandowski's pretty happy with it. And I think that's probably more significant than people have worked out yet. Because I, I think the, the, the sort of... Third quarter of last season, Lewandowski was really quite poor post-World Cup. And, and I think, in fact, I know because he's, he's said it, but also because of what some of the other people have said, that he really wasn't happy about the way the team was structured. He didn't feel like he was getting a lot of the ball, Lewandowski. And now I think he feels like he's being provided with the opportunities that, that in that spell of last season he wasn't getting. It's all about happiness. If everyone's happy, it's fine. What about Atleti then? You know, they beat Real Madrid. It was Real's first defeat. I guess that doesn't tell the whole story of that game. It, it could have gone either way, couldn't it? It could have done. And I think there's a couple of key points at which it, it, it might have been different. But, but I think when you, when you kind of take a step back at it and, and look at the whole game, and I actually think being in the stadium, that first, the first 35 minutes until, so Atletico tunnel up, Real Madrid score. Then you have 10 minutes of Atletico, I think, thinking, oops, here we go. This is Real Madrid doing what Real Madrid do. Atletico Madrid then score at the start of the second half. And, and I think if you take a step back from it, you've got, 65, 70 minutes of Atletico being the better side. And I don't think there's too much debate that they, they deserve to win this. But there's a couple of moments when perhaps it could have gone the other way. You surround you'd have a goal ruled out at 2-1, which would have made it 2-2, which I must admit in the stadium, I didn't, didn't think was the right decision. Having watched replay, I think it is. There's a couple of debates about a couple of yellow cards and stuff like that and a potential foul on Belling before one of the goals. But if you look at Madrid trying to come back from 3-1, loads of the ball... Lots of corners, I think 12 corners in the end, maybe 11. Um, a handful of shots from around the edge of the area, but not really very much in terms of kind of clear chance, in terms of imagination or an idea about how they how they play. And Madrid really weren't very good and Atletico Madrid really were. Mm. And so you get the sense that Barca and Real are kind of exciting, you know, but they're both quite vulnerable. And Real obviously have won a lot, but have won a lot of late games. So it means it, it feels like it's hard to say where the title will go if, you know, before we... Look at some other possible contenders. Yeah. I, I mean, look, the, the, the natural thing is always, of course, to say Madrid and Barcelona and also to say that they'll rack up huge numbers of points. And then possibly before before this derby, I might have said that I think those two will be a long way ahead of everyone else. This does... Um, it reminds us, I think, what happened previously, because you say the early goals. You look at Real Madrid, since the first day of the season when they won 2-0 away at Athletic, 
they've conceded the first goal in every single game. And all of those inside, I think it's inside 12 minutes. Now, in the game against Celta, there will be people saying, no, they didn't against Celta. Well, against Celta, they conceded in two minutes. They were, they were really, really lucky that it was ruled out for what I think was a slightly ropey decision. But anyway, the point doesn't really matter. The point is that they conceded first in all those games. And in all of the games, they were able to come back. In this one, they weren't, partly because it was two goals, partly because they were up against a better team. And I think some of the flaws that we already saw in the structure of the team, a very, very narrow midfield, two full-backs that were quite exposed. Um, the two centre-backs were dreadful at the weekend as well, which actually probably wasn't predictable. But I think it reminded us that they've got some flaws. So if you look at the league title race, this weekend kind of made a lot of people, I think, and certainly I would include myself, kind of tilt back towards Barcelona from Real Madrid because what we've seen in the last three games with Barcelona since the transfer window closed suggests to us this team that we thought were okay but not brilliant have now got the strength in depth and that little touch of something else and particularly Cancelo because they've desperately needed a fullback of that type for basically since Dani Alves was there. And I think you now look at Barcelona and think there's a strength in depth there that Real Madrid haven't got. Now, I think with Real Madrid's starting, first choice starting 11, I think they're probably the strongest team in Spain. But they, I don't think they have the strength and depth. And of course, they've got big injuries. Courtois out, Militao's out. They'll miss almost the whole season. Vinicius has been out, but is now back. Um, and, and maybe this reminds us that Atletico can do it. Because had they lost, they would have been 11 points behind. Now, I know it's only September, but 11 points behind kind of makes you think, mm, it's done. Sid, yeah, um, it's quite nice to hear all these lovely things you say about Barcelona and to see them play, actually. But I, I can't help thinking, I mean, not that long ago, wasn't that a club which was supposed to... Uh, be extinguished forever because it had no money, had forfeited 700 million euros of future income. Uh, Jean Laporta was liable for a 20 million loan personally. All the levers had been used and then everything's fine. I mean, <laughs> how does it work? Oh, wow. I mean, how long have you got? <laughs> everything's fine in, in, in so far as the, the, I mean, in a way to, to, I'm, I'm going to try and give you the Barcelona view of it first, right? Before we start picking at the holes in some of this argument. Everything's fine. Well, this is precisely the reason why they did what last year we all referred to as those levers. It's precisely the reason why they, they've, they've managed this the way that they have. And of course, let's not forget last year they won the league. And they won the league off the back of that, that summer in which they, they generated, I think it was uh, 780 million euros through the palancas, through the levers, which, as you rightly say, and this is one of the things that I think wasn't talked about then, is future income you're losing. Now, albeit it's like a mortgage, it's future income you're losing over a period of time and you can spread it out over many years. And that was, But one of the things that Barcelona did last year was take the decision that if we go for full, full austerity to try and deal with some of these economic problems, we will actually destroy the team. And a team is what helps generate the money. So in part, we need to be winning because otherwise that future earnings is even worse, if you see what I mean. So there was this attempt to find the, the, the balance and to build a strong team now. Now, I still think that within that, there were elements that, in my view at least, they overpaid for. There were things that they didn't do wrong. They didn't chip away at the, at the financial base, the cost, salary cost of the club, as much as they would have liked to. And of course, the income didn't go up as much as they like, all the more so because this season they've left the Camp Nou and they're playing at Montjuic, which is... I think 58,000 rather than 98,000. That obviously makes a difference. This year, slightly different. Look at what they bought in it. Gundogan, Oriol Romeo, Jao Felix, Jao Cancelo. I feel like I've missed someone. I feel like there's someone else, but maybe there isn't. My mind's gone blank. Anyway, all of those cost them 3.5 million euros. So the rest of them are all on, on free transfers. On relatively low salaries, as clubs like Barcelona go. At the same time, Alba goes, 
Busquets goes, of course, halfway through the last season, you have PK retiring. So they've reduced, I think, something like 200, I think it's something like 200 million euros off their salary mass. Now, they still um, don't comply with the financial fair play criteria, which means they can, and this is the way the league works, they can only spend one euro for every three euros they recoup, which means they can't, they're not blocked from spending, but their spending is massively limited so that the long-term effect is to improve it. So, so in that sense, you can say, well, actually, it's worked really, really well, and they've managed it this summer really quite well. The problem is, as you rightly say, these underlying issues, some of them are still there, but they have worked towards them, and they are working towards fixing them. How much does this whole system as well like rely on, okay, but we still need 35-year-old Lewandowski to score goals? Oh, absolutely. No, no, and, and, and you look through the squad and, and this was the thing that I was really thinking when they, when they signed Jao Felix, there was a bit of me that thought, you don't really need him because those kind of wide attacking, sort of floaty wide attacking players, you've got quite a lot of those already. And he comes in and, and actually has been an improvement on what they had and, and so far at least has played very well. And, and it gives you strength and depth. And Chavi made some comment about how when he was a player, if the club signed someone in his position, he started playing better because he realised, whoops, hang on, I, I better do this. And, you know, we'd love to think that players give absolutely everything all the time, but maybe that little bit of something extra is necessary. And yet, the one player who absolutely doesn't have a replacement is Lewandowski. Now, you could play Ferran Torres through the middle, you could invent some other kind of false nine position, but the only other person who could really play a centre-forward was Ansu Fati, who of course has gone. And that's the other thing to throw into this equation, is that when Jao Felix came, I think there was a, a real kind of tinge of sadness for a lot of Barcelona fans that that had to be done through the departure of Ansu, albeit only for one year. And there's another question here, by the way. Let's go back to the financial thing that, that you were talking about, Philippe. Joao Felix is here on loan. One year, no purchase clause. So imagine he's brilliant. Then next summer, you've got that question that says, he's now worth a lot of money. What, what do we do? You can see Simeone just letting him rot <laughs> in the reserves, can't you? Uh, Barry? Uh, Sid, your, your column uh, this week was, was quite Alvaro Morata centric uh he scored two goals for atleti in that win and you you were sort of saying he's kind of found his happy place now well he hopes he has um and 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 as i made the point in 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 the piece that every time he's gone to a new club he's talked about it in terms of finding himself having a place being happy being comfortable and i've all the way through Murata's career one of the things that sort of strikes you about Murata is you look at him now go he's 30 He's 30. This is, and yet it still feels like he's looking for that place. And, and it, it, it feels to me like he's had a career. And, you know, this is the risk of playing amateur psychologist here. And I've very definitely done that in the piece. And, there are and a lot of it. podcasts that do that already, Sid. I'll be yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but they're award-winning podcasts, aren't they? And, and, and they're, they're pioneers who invented this genre and everything. And it sort of felt to me all the way through his career that he's been kind of on this search for happiness that's always been just out of reach. And I think you can see that just in his career path. The fact that he goes to Juventus and is forced to come back and wants to go back there again because this is a place where I kind of have felt at home. Then he goes to Atletico and he's, okay, this is the club that I supported as a boy. But then he goes again and then he comes back again. And even though he's come back, there's always this sense that could this summer be the year that he goes? And there's a slight lack of, I suppose there's always that very, there's a year but with him. There's a slight lack of faith in him all the time. And I think actually that's partly him. Now, one of the things that, uh, this is one of the reasons why I'm uneasy with, with Morata is I think part of it, and we talk about Morata as being vulnerable and Morata as being maybe not mentally strong as some players are. And I wonder if actually the difference, there's an element of that, but the difference is also that he's prepared to express it in a way that other players don't. And so because he externalises it, 
we we become aware of it. And maybe that kind of deepens that sense of his vulnerability. And it's that comment from Gigi Buffon when he was at Juventus. Uh, and Morata mentioned this in when they played Italy in the Euros in 2016, I think. Um, and Gigi Buffon had said that he'd see Morata crying one day on the physio's table after a training session. And he said to him, don't let anyone see you cry. Now, obviously, we can all step back and go, wow, that's terrible. What a terrible piece of advice to say to someone, you know, don't let your emotions out. Don't, you know, don't don't show your weakness. We, we're supposed to be caring and inclusive and all of these sorts of things. But but Gigi Buffon's point, and Morata made this point, Buffon was the person who most supported him, wasn't don't cry, keep it in. It was don't let your enemies see it because they'll make the most of it. And the people who love you will see it and will, will be saddened by it. So, so express it to them and explain it to them rather than it just coming out. And so, and I, and I think, and Buffon made that comment, didn't he, that Morata would be the best in the world if he could get over his mental hangups. And I think all the way through his career, we felt this with Morata and we felt this idea that, okay, maybe now can be the time. And of course, one of the reasons why we feel this or why we believe this is because he says it and he said it himself at the weekend. He said, look, maybe now this maturity has come to me at the right time. And my dubiousness with that is that I've heard him talk about maturity before quite a lot of times, going back quite a few years. You flagged up an interesting quote of his in the piece. It's a pity that mental maturity comes when we're almost ready to yeah. retire. Yeah. But I think lots of players have mental maturity you know, at a very young age. I mean, Jude Bellingham has, has demonstrated incredible mental maturity. He's not even 20 yet. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and Murata, of course, is, is partly talking about himself. And, and again, you know, some of these are external and, and, and possibly a bit too easy for us to latch onto. And I'm absolutely as guilty as anyone else of this. But, but listen to Murata talk or even look at him. He's kind of doughy-eyed. He's sort of got a slightly sad tone. He's very, very quiet. He's, he's, an, he's a thoroughly lovely bloke. It really is. And, and you sometimes you sort of you, you kind of feel at times that you you wish there was some way for him to. Yeah, I mean, to use Buffon's line to somehow be stronger, to somehow not have that vulnerability. But I really admire him for it. And yet at the same time, you know, we've, we've always had this sense throughout his career that it's, it's, it's just out of reach. It's, it's really interesting just that it's Buffon. It's because Buffon, very extroverted character, and he's talked about sort of, the, you know, being a bit crazy, but he's also dealt with depression very publicly mm. and and talked about that so what what I don't know Nikki is is did is when he started doing that and, and it makes me wonder if the moments when he was having those conversations with Murata were actually informed by his own battles if you sort of mean that even if they weren't publicly yet he was effectively I wouldn't call it projecting but saying to Murata you know I'm telling this in part because I understand it, in part because I'm going through it, even if, it, because correct me if I'm wrong, I think the, the stuff about depression came out quite late in his career, didn't it? It came out later, but yeah, I mean, he, he was dealing with it in his yeah. 20s. So yeah, it was. Yeah, exactly. So so privately, he's probably telling Morata things that he knows, even if publicly we don't yet know that he's dealing with those things. It's interesting. Um, uh, want to rattle through some other things in Spain before we end part one, Sid. Girona. I spent a lot of time on Google Earth today looking. It seems like a nice place, but I don't know a lot oh, more lovely. about... I don't know a lot more about them, you know, and this it's not a travel show. Uh, I wouldn't mind doing that. But anyway, why are they? how are they second? What's going on? Quite a lot of Games of Thrones was uh, filmed in Girona. So if you, if you walk around Girona, you'll recognise you'll recognize a lot of it. It's a lovely city. Um, it's, it's not really been a football city traditionally. It's uh, 99 kilometres from Barcelona, almost everyone in Girona. They're going to hate me for saying this if they hear this now, but they've, they've traditionally always been Barcelona fans and it's looked towards Barcelona as not being a football city. But how they've done it, well, there's a, there's a number of reasons. I suppose let's start with the basic one. They're owned by Manchester City. 
So there's a there's a financial stability there. Oh, there goes the romance. Well, I, 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 that's why I was sort of reluctant to use that first because I thought that might be the the response. And and I really quite admire what they do. And so yeah, to strip away the romance at the start feels like a, a bit of a pity. But actually, in fairness, they're they're owned by Manchester City, which isn't to say there's suddenly loads of purchasing because there isn't. Although there are some players that are City owned, they've had players come you know that have been kind of part of the group. One of the things that's that's given them is is obviously a financial security. I think it's given them a. a a stability of idea as well. So the idea is pretty clear. Even when they went down, they didn't suddenly go, oh my God, we've, we've screwed this up. Let's change everything. Well, if you look at what they've bought in, in the Ukrainian market, the last couple of deals as well have been very good. Sikhankov has been really, really good for them. The only player in the world who has flu symptoms as well as a footballer. Um, sorry, Sikhankov, you see. It's just every time <laughs> the commentators say Sikhankov, I think that's brilliant. What a great name. Anyway, they've got a manager who everybody loves. Mitchell, who was at Raya before. They play really nice football. They really go for teams. And they're, they're, they're a lot of fun. They also have the catchiest anthem in the whole of Spain, which they put on as soon as the game finishes, as most clubs do. So it means that every single post-game interview pitch side, I have no idea what the players are saying because I'm too busy there going, Girona, da, da, da. It just Anyway, it's in my mind now. I've ruined it. Um, I've only got Limvoy Sinus as the other <laughs> flu, flu, flu-based footballer, but I'm sure Limvoy more will come. Sinus, that's amazing. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's not. I mean, it's not actually his name. Sid, that's fine. <laughs> um, uh, talk to us about the Las Palmas players who missed their flight because they went to get a coffee. That's oh, great. I love this. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to slightly defend them here. Uh, you know what? I, I promise you, I'm not making this up. Literally, the day before this happened, I'd uh, spoken to the communications director at Las Palmas to say that I was kind of interested in this idea of how Las Palmas are the only team in Spain that have to travel from basically Africa for every single game. So every game is an adventure. Every journey is an adventure. It must be crazy having to do this. Logistics must be amazing. The very next day, 15 Las Palmas players miss a flight. And I think, mm, uh, yeah, he's, he's not going to be quite so impressed with my, with my view now. And um, Basically, to be fair to them, I'm going to defend them slightly. It wasn't just players. It was physios and staff as well. They were at an airport. The flight was delayed. They said, we'll tell you in an hour when the flight's going. They went to get a coffee. And then instead of being in an hour, in 20 minutes, the flight took off. I'm like, what? Or, I mean, I might be making up the hour and the 20 minutes thing, but basically it took off a bit earlier than they'd said and they thought it was more delayed than it was. So they then had to charter a flight to get them to Seville in time for the game. Uh, all right. Um, well, that'll do for part one. If we have extra time for a bit of Santi Cazorla, we'll do it oh. in, in part three, Sid. But you talk too much. Uh, um, we'll be back in a second doing Serie A. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Charlie says, are we going to get a live show rendition of A Whole New World from Aladdin with Max as Aladdin and Barry as Jasmine? Uh, This is in relation to me appearing in the culture section of the Guardian. I mean, they must have run out of people, (laughs) mustn't they? I'm just laughing at Barry as Jasmine. I want him in a a little belly top. God, no, you don't. (laughs) It's a feature called The Honest Playlist. We get sort of songs from your life, but you've got to be brutally honest about it. Some of the uh, below the line, probably the worst selection of songs I have ever seen on here. <laughs> well played, sir. Um, and uh, I got uh, my first single ever was the Anfield rap, but I, I got my vinyl sizes muddled up without anyone taking this into the gutter. I said I got a nine inch single, and of course, it was a seven inch single. And the musos who read this were very upset. Philippe, if Philippe reads this, if Philippe reads this article with these tunes, 
he'll never speak to me again. But anyway, uh, we may do that. The Anfield, the Anfield, yeah, Paul FC are hot as hell. To be fair, my 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 first single that I actually bought was Roland Rats. Rats, <laughs> pretty good. So that isn't, no, that it's, isn't it's, too it's pretty bad. much the same yeah, level. I'm Kevin the Gerbil in that is sensational. Anyway, rat rapping. Um, exactly. uh, we're going on tour. We haven't quite worked out the finale, so it could be that. Uh, uh, tickets still available. London on the 13th of November uh, with Ellis. Troy and Philippe um, and 15th in Manchester with John Bruin and Nadam and Nuaha and the Will Unwin anecdotes. The Brighton show on the 22nd uh, with Nikki and Johnny Lou uh, is sold out but is being live streamed so literally every person listening to this can watch it and I will not stop until you all do. TheGuardian.com slash FWTour23. Uh, right. Um, where do you want to start, Nikki? I want to start with that Juve defeat to Sassuolo with Wojciech Chesney's sort of Rick at the start and that amazing no look own goal, if you don't mind. Yeah, some moments in that game, right? It's I always find the beginning of a season like it's amazing in how predictable it is in the way people react to things. You know, of course, like a few days ago, people were saying Juventus willing to challenge for the title because they don't have Champions League or Europa League to worry about this season, so they've got more time. And and now they lose the game, which I mean, they weren't great, but also is defined by two pretty extraordinary like individual mistakes and, and suddenly that's it in the bin all of it is is a complete write-off it was it was a wacky game though it was a lot of fun to to, to watch uh, as someone who is not invested in either team specifically um yeah Chesney I'm sure people saw has this shot it's not straight at him from Lariente because it does swerve in the air but it's very close to him and he just lets it go through him somehow sort of parries it down through his own legs Juventus going 1-0 down at, at Sassuolo and they come back and it's 1-0 and then they go 2-1 down again and Actually, Berardi for Sassuolo really should be sent off at the start of the second half because he did an absolutely horrendous studs-up challenge on Bremen that doesn't get spotted somehow. Well, does get spotted, but gets a yellow card and not a red. Juventus equalise again. Federico Chiesa has been actually brilliant to start this season, which we haven't really seen since the Euros two years ago. So really sort of exciting element to the start of the season is how good Chiesa has been for Juventus again. Again, they, they blow it, they go behind and they're chasing the game at 3-2 and this just extraordinary own goal which I, I don't even think I'm going to be able to do it justice in how I explain it but Chesney's playing the ball out he's got a free kick on the left hand side and he, he plays it out trying to get it quickly to Gatti in the middle they've got two minutes of injury time left to find an equaliser and Gatti's pressed and rather than move the ball forward he just without looking plays the ball back to the middle of his goal now Chesney had played it to him from outside the box and so is nowhere near the middle of his goal but it just looks like a, a brilliant no-look pass that goes straight into an empty net and Juventus lose great. three two. Yeah, one of the commentators is just saying, impossible, imp- so loudly. And then I think the Juve <laughs> TV one just sort of says, I don't, is, is incredible, incredible or incredible? What it, what it, incredible. Yeah, and he's just very quietly says, in- incredible. They- they just yeah. need to put the test card on, don't they? Juve TV just goes for the test card. The the girl, the girl, the girl yeah. with the with the with the dummy thing and the and the chalkboard. So it's interesting, actually. I mean, like Inter and Milan are at the top, but actually, I think I don't know if they're the most interesting stories. Like Lazio were doing, you know, came second last year, one win all season. You know, Napoli haven't started brilliant, and we were so great last year. I don't know if those stories are the more interesting ones. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it's interesting that Inter have started this well, coming off that Champions League final defeat. Um, there were questions about whether this was like a one-off or something they could sustain. And I think the answer is pretty emphatic. Five five wins, 14 goals scored, only one conceded. I think Simone Inzaghi is doing an incredible job there when you consider that 
every year it's basically like, right, we've got no money. We're supposed to be meeting financial fair play requirements. Who can we get it rid of without ruining this? Um, and of course, this summer, Onana was the headline. But Inter did also say goodbye to a bunch of other players. I mean, Marcelo Brozovic, Edin Dzeko, Romelu Lukaku. These are not nobody. These are, are big names. And, um, and the fact that they've sort of gone from that to looking stronger than they did frankly in the league last season is is certainly um a, a story and and Marcus Turam has been a fantastic signing by the way really really impressed with Turam at Inter so so far but I agree with you that perhaps um sort of more striking because we expected Inter to be at least in the conversation for the title despite those departures Lazio with with four points after after five games and Napoli being um having not won any of the last three games are, are both big stories I don't know where to go first. Um, I think Napoli probably is, is the more obvious one because, of course, they did win the league title last season. I think it's a nightmare any time, isn't it, right? Like any time you've got a manager who's done something that wasn't expected, winning the league title, Napoli didn't done that twice in their history. Luciano Spalletti did an extraordinary job last season, leaves the club. I think we talked about it at the time. There's a lot behind that, but essentially it goes down to feeling like the club didn't sort of respect the work that he was doing and, and didn't... Um, didn't give him the sort of acknowledgement that he deserved for that. The appointment to replace him, I think just had everyone's head spinning a bit. I certainly want to sort of hear Philippe's perspective on this because perhaps there's a different perspective in France. But but Rudy Garcia is a name who has been in, in Italy before, obviously was at Roma and he came to Roma quite fresh from winning the league title with Lille and there was excitement and buzz around him at the time. And he did okay. He was one of a series of Roma managers who did not really sort of what they were hoping for, which was to push on and, and become a, um, a a serious title contender in that chapter. But they, you know, they weren't awful in that time. He had a, a really sort of strong midfield with Nangalan and Strootman and, and De Rossi that, that was interesting for a moment. But in the last decade, he hasn't really done anything to suggest in my mind that he should be given the reins to a club that's just achieved one of the best things in its history. And that appointment was really surprising. And and again, sort of with empathy for how hard it is to follow a manager's done an incredible job, it seems like it's going very badly. And I think not just the results, because results, three games that a win can happen. In fact, Napoli's end to last season wasn't as good as their start to it. But this weekend, they drew nil-nil with Bologna and he takes off Victor Osimhen with a few minutes to go. And Osimhen is visibly like saying, what are you doing? We need two up top. And it's one thing for a striker to be annoyed that he's coming off. It's one thing to be sort of like competitive and not want to be taken out of a game that's in the balance. But I think that really felt like this signal has been interpreted as a signal that the players and Victor Osman, Serie's top scorer last season, maybe your most important player, it's him and Karatskalia, not respecting the manager's tactical choices as well, already sort of openly disrespecting like what he's trying to do. Um felt like it was a, a signal that things aren't going great. Yeah, I would say one thing about Rudy Garcia. Um, I could say many things about Rudy Garcia. But I would say that if you meet people who think very highly of Rudy Garcia, I think the people who think the most highly about Rudy Garcia, I can tell you one thing. Rudy Garcia's opinion of himself is even higher than the <laughs> than that. And um, he's not lacking for self-confidence. And I guess that's one of the reasons why he's been able to, uh, in a way, bully his way to some very high... I mean, he was... I think that his highest achievement with, with with Lille that was that was terrific. But what a Lille team that was the Lille team of you know Javinho and Hazard before you know Hazard became a superstar. And but his credit has dwindled in France quite quite dramatically. And I'm a bit like you. I think it's a little bit of a mystery. But he's still 
keeps getting all these top jobs. I think self-confidence does w- wonders for you, doesn't it? I'm trying to work out who you're looking at on the Zoom. You <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. But Rudy, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's become a little bit of a... I wouldn't say... It's not a joke. I mean, he's not... A, he's, he's a perfectly decent coach in many ways, I'm sure. But there, there is something about Rudy which is strange, which is that he seems to be... It's like... It's one of those bouncing balls. Some bit Laurent Blanc is a bit of the same... People who keep bouncing from one place to the next get find out and then they find another place to where they could go bouncy, bouncy, bouncy again. And um, yeah, I mean, well done to him, by the way. I mean, it's, it's remarkable to be so successful at getting good jobs. Picking up on what Philippe was saying about self-confidence, because I just remember when he signed for Roma, there was a really big thing about like how he sometimes like would play the guitar and sing to his players. And there's like a, a video of him. Oh, no. oh <laughs> Jesus. Oh, there's a YouTube video of him singing El... Murder this word el pom pompero. It's a it's a thing. I don't know what else to say it's about Garcia's self confidence. <laughs> no, I think very, Philippe has nailed something very there. David Brent, doesn't it? Um, what about what about Lazio? Quickly, yeah, from one character to another, right? Because Sari's always been this sort of much more understated character who who likes to sort of um, make his grumpy asides and 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 smoke his cigarettes and and not be in the limelight as much. Their season has has yeah started really badly. They've got. Four points from five games. Nothing like what you sort of would have hoped for after finishing second last season. But to me, again, sort of felt like one of those stories you slightly saw coming because Sergei Milinkovic-Savic left in the summer off to Saudi Arabia. And I think it's really hard to overstate how much of Lazio's identity has been Milinkovic-Savic in the last few seasons. He's such a extraordinary footballer. And in some ways, I'm I'm sort of just a bit disappointed that this is the way he's gone now that he's finally made that move to, to leave Lazio I think it would have been interesting to see him playing Champions League football somewhere whether it's at Lazio or somewhere else um, because he's he's such a, a, a an unusual blend of, of physical size and and close control and I don't mean that in like a sort of lanky Peter Crouch good touch for a big man guys he can bully people as well he's, he's he's different and without that the team just hasn't really sort of seemed to work out who it wants to be yet they did sign a, 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 a lot of players this summer, including um, this striker, uh, Tati Castellanos, who's barely been on the pitch. And after the um, game at the weekend, you had the, the owner, Claudio Lotito, was sort of heard screaming at, at Sarri saying, you know, why aren't you using Castellanos? And um, uh, they've now sort of gone into un ritiro, which is when they say to the players, right, you're, you're not allowed to, to stay at home the night before the game, you've got to all come into the training camp and we're going to have a, a sort of mini training camp together. Yeah, it's it's going not well for um, Sarri at Lazio. And actually, I, I don't know, Sid, obviously Castellanos came from Girona. I'm, I'm also sure it's probably Castellanos and I'm saying that wrong. Yeah, he, 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 he had his big moment last year when he scored four against Real Madrid in one game. Um, and, and actually his goal scoring figures were pretty good last year. But I think there was always a slight sense that he might have been performing a little bit above his actual level, and and that that the, there wasn't there wasn't a sort of a sense of disaster when he left. I, I think that some people thought it was a pity because they weren't sure what what other options they would have as, as centre forwards. But but I, th- I think I think there was this sense that he could be really good, but they weren't actually sure if he if he really was. What about Roma? Jo- one win for Jose. Uh, has he thrown anyone under the bus yet, or is he still <laughs> Renato Sanchez? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, he feels a bit. I don't know. I, I feel like he looks a bit defeated at the moment, Jose. And I think that I still struggle to believe that it was really his plan to be there this season. 
I think his plan was to win the Europa League last season and and to ride off triumphantly into the sunset. And I think that even after losing the Europa League, even though there was this sort of story that, no, 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 I said to the players in the change room afterwards that I was coming back, it just doesn't quite feel like his heart's in it. And it's it's interesting because he, he has got the club to go out there on a, on a limb for him again and spend a big chunk of wages on getting Lukaku in the door. And actually Lukaku has started quite well. He scored... The, their equalise against Torino at the weekend. He scored against Sheriff in midweek. He scored in the, the win against Empoli before that. Like he's been doing well, but the team isn't. Uh, they they absolutely walloped Empoli 7-0. Um, but everyone's walloping Empoli. They've got zero points and zero goals after five games. And yeah, Roma have, have, have been struggling. So I, I feel like that ship will right itself to some extent um, because they, they have got some good things, interestingly, in the front half of the team. Dybala, Lukaku, um, and 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 others, Pellegrini. There's actually some good talent there. the The issue for me, strangely for them, is it feels like players who last season were overachieving that were helping them to be so solid defensively. And I'm thinking of someone like Chris Smalling, who's been really good for Roma for a couple of seasons. It almost feels like this is the inevitable end of every Jose cycle. He's pushed them with that. We're going to be us against the world, all in, all the time. 100% commitment and it has carried them to some interesting places they did win the Europa Conference League they did go to the Europa League final and very well could have won that final but I think there's always been this cycle which is it hasn't there that after two years some of those players who you've pushed and pushed and pushed are a little bit burned out and that's kind of how Roma looked to me at the start of this season or after two minutes at Spurs if he's looking defeated he just needs a, <laughs> a big glass of Rudy Garcia juice doesn't he and then he'll be he'll be uh, back to his normal Jose. Anyway, that'll do for part two. Uh, part th- can I can I do one more, Max? One. Oh, of course, one. Nikki. Whatever you want. Just because Lecce are third in the table and they won't be soon and they're going to play you. That's a lovely place as well. If you want a mini break, that's beautiful. Spot. Right? Like right down in the heel of Italy's boot. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's an incredible job Roberto D'Aversa is doing there. They're the only unbeaten team in Serie A together with Inter. Um, they've um, made this sort of really canny signing uh, Montenegro and Nikola Kristovic, who's looked brilliant up front for them in a few games but they've had these other players like Pontus Almqvist um, young Swedish player who's looked really exciting with his, his running and his dribbling they just keep finding goals from nowhere as well they they won this weekend against Genoa with Remy Udang playing his first game coming off the bench and scoring uh, first game of the season and for the first time in their history they're going to play against Juventus looking down on Juventus on the table so it's a fun little story. Good luck, Lecce. Hope they stay there. Right, that'll do for part two. Part three, we'll do a bit of Germany, a bit of France, a bit of any other business. Hello, I'm Grace Ben. I'm back and I've been busy. My new book, Comfort Eating, which is based on our award-winning podcast, is out now. You can get hold of it at guardianbookshop.com. And from Tuesday, the podcast is returning for its next season with an exciting lineup including Shirley Ballas, Bridget Christie, Jamie Demetrio, and many more. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to join me on Book Tour, I'll be in London on the 9th of October and in Manchester on the 11th talking about my go-to comfort foods and a lot more. Get your tickets today from membership.theguardian.com forward slash events. I can't wait to see you there. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, so look, Bayern Munich are top of uh, uh, the Bundesliga, uh, level with Bayer Leverkusen. Harry Kane got a hat-trick, two assists against Bochum in a 7-0 win. Uh, we will do more of Germany uh, when Archie is uh, next on. Um, 
Should we do? Do you want to do France, Philippe first? Uh, Liga. Eric says, "Is is PSG in danger of being a football team?" And how worried is Barry about it? How worried should Barry be, Philippe, about PSG sort of losing to Galacticos and looking more like a football team? Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary. I was actually looking through the ins and outs of uh, in the team uh, over the summer, and it it is unbelievable. I don't think there are many other clubs in Europe which have had such a turnover. And when you look at the players who left. Um, Sergio Ramos, Lionel Messi, of course, uh, Neymar, who's gone the, to uh, uh, for a new challenge in Saudi Arabia, uh, but also Verratti, who has been really a symbol of those years, and um, and Draxler, who's been another form of symbol, another symbol, perhaps not as a as a happy uh, as happy a symbol as Verratti has been, uh, and in in their place, I mean, loads of young players have come in. Um, Sometimes for an awful lot of money. I mean, they, they spent nearly 100 million euros on, on Rondon Colomwani from Atran uh, Frankfurt, uh, Barcola right from Lyon, of course, Usman Dembele right from Barcelona, had his first assist this weekend, by the way. And and when you look at the, the team that uh, Luis Enrique uh, put on the pitch for the so-called classic, which was anything but classic, believe me, um, you, you really thought, my goodness, this bears very little relationship to the PSG that uh, uh, we know and, and we love to mock in, in, in a sense. So yes, there's danger of an actual team uh, being, being created here. Um, the only, I mean, they were very, very good against, um, uh, against Marseille, but I think we'll need to have a, a word or ten about what is happening at Marseille at the moment, because that's quite extraordinary, even by Marseille standards. I mean, but some players who were really, you know, unimpressive, uh, like Hakimi, uh, in the recent past, he's had an absolutely magnificent game. I hope you, you saw that free kick that he, he scored. Um, which was absolutely, uh, I mean, maestro, magisterial. Um, his assist as well for, for the second goal was beautiful. And uh, things conspired um, in one way against PSG because Kylian Mbappé went off with what could be actually a pretty bad injury uh, up to the point that some people think he might be unavailable for you know quite a few weeks, might even miss the game against Newcastle. Um, so that's bad. But on the other hand, when you see Gonzalo Ramos, who came on, uh, scored two goals, uh, including one absolute exquisite finish with the outside of his foot. And and Mwani actually also scored. It's falling into place. And uh, they've had a bit of a difficult start of the, se- of the season, not because they had particularly difficult games, but simply, you know, it will take time to for this young squad to, to, to gel. But yes, the, the old star-studded uh, PSG has gone, basically. Philippe, let me ask you the inevitable Spanish question. Is this, is this all about Luis Enrique? Well, it, I think it has to do with Luis Enrique and the fact that, and also about the context in which he can work. Because I think there might have been um, managers before who could have done the same kind of thing with PSG. But the problem is that they had somebody called Neymar in the dressing room. They had all those clans within the dressing room, the, the Brazilian clan, the French clan, and so forth. Uh, they had to deal with the messy situation with a fantastic player who didn't want to be there, as we now all know, and I think always knew. Uh, had to deal with um, uh, the problems with um, uh, players who simply were not engaging in, in, in the process, like Draxler, who is like a mystery, a marvellously talented player who never did anything really uh, at PSG, uh, uh, players who had perhaps a dubious um, hygiene, as they say uh, uh, in French, because that's the word we say, hygiene de vie, um, like, like Verratti, despite all his you know, wonderful talent. And suddenly he doesn't have to deal with that anymore. 
and uh, he's brought in. I mean, a player like Moani is a dream to work with. Uh, you know, you will remember uh, when he arrived. You know, I think for many people will have discovered him during the World Cup and the impact he had when he came on for France. And you could see um, what a driven and talented young man he was. Um, Dembele actually looks all right to me, by the way. Um, and and Luis Enrique, yes, uh, it seems to be working better. But I would say one of the reasons is because the context has completely changed. They've decided at long last that their system of uh, just recruiting star after star after star didn't work. And so they're trying to build a proper football club. I see, Philippe, that Mourani, Dembele, Hakimi and Kurzawa got themselves in a bit of bother. They were filmed after the win over Marseille singing a, a potty-mouthed Marseille, anti-Marseille chant. So... They're, I think they're all looking at a ban, are they? I, to be honest, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think they're looking at a ban for that. But uh, I would say one thing that it will certainly have endeared them to PSG supporters. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, you talk about Marseille, and I mean, I oh, watched God. them play Ajax in the uh, Europa League. That was a great yeah, game, three actually. Uh, the three-three crazy game. But yeah. but their manager had just resigned because, well, you tell the story that Ultras had had meetings with the club and had not quite issued threats or something? Well, it's um, absolutely awful what happened. Um, It's um, um, an example of fan power, which I think we could do without. Um, But unfortunately, that's been the case at Marseille for, well, maybe 40 years, ever since actually Bernard Tapie decided to bring the ultras into, uh, um, to use them almost as a kind of um, um, army in the stands. And um, they have, uh, even though they don't own a single share of the club, um, they have a huge impact and influence on the decisions taken because they're the lawmakers, basically, in the stands and outside the Velodrome. Anyway, things were not going too well for Marseille at the beginning of the season. Fans were not happy with the style of football that was played uh, by Marcelino. So there was a meeting, a clear-the-air meeting was organized at the Commanderie, which is the uh, training center of uh, Marseille. And um, things didn't go very well because um, Pablo Longoria, who is the president, the youthful looking uh, president of Olympique Marseille, had to, uh, was subjected to verbal volleys, which uh, the the most quotable were things like, um, do your suitcases up and and just uh, get out, Uh, you know, things like that. It was really aggressive. And according to one source, who was present at the meeting, there were even threats, um, serious threats, which were leveled at, uh, at Pablo Longoria. So, which is awful, really. Um, what I understand and, and, and you know, talk to talk like Sky Sports is that um, Longoria actually contacted the police and the French prosecutor in Marseille to, um, you know, make it, made it known that he was concerned, worried. So, very serious. Marcelino decided you know what? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Seven games in, he decided to go. Um, and then um, Pablo Longoria has decided to stay, apparently. I mean, there were a lot of talk about him resigning, um, but that's not going to be the case. He's um, apparently even had the support of uh, President President Macron, who uh, intervened and said, uh, you've got all my support. Didn't he tender his resignation and Marseille's no, owner, McCourt. I, I, I um, don't think so. Refused um, it. It's, uh, Is that right? It, it, what happened on the very day of the meetings, that I think Longoria was really shaken and actually said, yes, at, at this point he said, well, if that's the way, I'm out. You know, there's no way. And um, 
After that, I think he, he thought about it again, had a second thoughts about it, probably talked to, talk to McCord. Uh, of course, McCord, by the way, himself, who, uh, who actually um, uh, gave the news of the very serious nature of the threats that had been leveled at, at Longoria. But the latest news I, I received was that he was staying, uh, staying put. Uh, what is in store for Marseille over the next weeks and months? I have absolutely no idea. They'll have to find, first of all, um, uh, to find a, a, a coach because the, the interim coach, uh, Abadonado, is actually uh, not licensed to coach. It's just a, a stopgap. Uh, but who wants to go to that madhouse at the moment, I wonder? Didn't Andre Villas-Boas and Igor Tudor resign in similar circumstances? They just sort of said, the, the the fans have too much power. We can't put up work in these conditions. And I, I absolutely, and um, I, I think that there are other examples actually. I mean, but it's uh, ever since I think um, Tappy disengaged from the from the club, we've had this ridiculous situation uh, because they they're out of out of control and out of order. Yeah. Basically, I wonder if um, it feels to me this is I, I don't know how many other clubs in France like it. In Italy, obviously, I think we saw Nicky. Was it Milan had to go and like go up to the crowd and get a volley of abuse and then, you know, go on their merry way. I remember Simon Kier just looking really kind of like... Yeah, that was after the Champions League defeat, didn't it? Yeah, what's happening here? But, but, I mean, I just wonder, like, are there... It feels like it's Italy has real ultra power. I don't know if it's the same in Spain and maybe Marseille, but I don't know if it's on France. But it sounds like Marseille have more power than, say, I don't know, Milan or, or Inter or anyone in Italy. Think about it as well what happened at Lyon earlier this season, right, Max. Okay. Did you do you remember the scenes where um, yeah. suddenly the the um, the guy, the head of the ultras with the megaphone, uh, was haranguing the players from the stands, and the players were all lined up on the pitch, and he was telling them what they, the ultras, thought of the um, of their performances. Absolutely extraordinary scenes. It's actually strange, and you know, you wonder. Whether it is because in France, fans have actually almost no say whatsoever in what their clubs, the way their clubs are run. None. Uh, so the only way, they're not in the boardrooms, they have no representation. So in a way, the only way they can make their presence felt is like this. And by, by going beyond what should be the normal behavior of a normal fan. And so, which means that this is what we saw at Lyon, and this is what we're seeing in Marseille, with, of course, in Marseille, it's 10 times as big because of the way the club works or doesn't work or, or, or is dysfunctional, which is one of the reasons why you would say any, any person who would like to invest in a great football club that is not quite pulling its own weight should invest in Marseille in theory, because that's one of the, it's, it's the greatest club in France. There's absolutely no doubt about that. It's not PSG. Marseille is. It's a proper football city. It's got a fantastic, uh, as well, um, uh, uh, array of talent in the region. But it is unmanageable. Frank McCourt is still there. I don't know how. Perhaps because he can't find anybody to sell it to. I mean, I'm just I'm quite interested about sort of. I mean, James Montague wrote a brilliant book about ultras, which I'd recommend anyone reads. But but like just briefly, the the power that they have in Italy. Yeah, I I, I think you can't make universal statements on on things like that. I mean, it varies from city to city. It varies from club to club. It varies from time to time. I mean, we've had cases of Rome derbies being 
fully abandoned because of sort of false reports about a police killing a, a, a kid outside the stadium. And so fans just basically demanded that the game got stopped and it did. Like, you know, that, that that's the level of, of fan power that's been exerted in Italian fan culture. And there's been all sorts of sort of stories in the last decade. You know, Juventus had a, a sort of ongoing saga with um, a, a group of ultras where there was, it's way too complicated to try to get into in the time you're going to want me to talk about it about but you know it's effectively about ticket distribution and, and who should control ticket distribution among among on the court of us. should it be the club or should it be the ultras effectively controlling that for themselves and and when it comes to the impact on players I think yes absolutely it's I think with all these things you're operating in these great big shades of grey right because I think it's almost universally standard in my Italian clubs to, to go and acknowledge your supporters at the end of the game in a way that hasn't always happened in England, I would say. And and that sort of habit of going under the Cordova to sort of say thank you to the ultras for being here and backing us is is part of it. And the the flip side of that coin is sometimes you're not saying thank you, you're going to apologize. And yeah, I mean this I mean there's there's a million stories. You could think about Mauro Cardi getting into it with those Inter ultras and then writing in his book, which somehow someone allowed him to publish, saying if they want to have a fight, well, I'll get my gangster friends over from Argentina and we'll see who's tougher. There's there's a million stories with it. And, and it, you know, it, it definitely varies again from place to place. We, we should probably do a, we should probably do an ultra special at some point. It'd be very interesting. Um, Phil says, what the heck's going on in the Netherlands? Why has hooliganism there increased so much over the last few years? Um, Ajax's home game against final was suspended on Sunday. Fans threw flares onto the pitch. Mounted police used tear gas to disperse rioting fans outside the stadium. A group of Ajax fans tried to force their way into the stadium after the game was halted, leading the police to disperse them with tear gas. Uh, Amsterdam police wrote on Twitter, after the stop game, supporters broke into the stadium entrance. Order has since been restored. Uh, the Ajax coach, Maurice Stein, said it's a jet black day. This makes it even worse. Ajax were 3-0 down in the second half when the game was suspended. The game is being played tomorrow, finished tomorrow behind closed doors, I believe. But um, I think it's down, well, in this specific incident, it's just down to the fact that Ajax are shy. <laughs> they, they, they've got off to a terrible start to the season. They've no Champions League for the first time in 13 years. That's making it harder for them to keep players. They've lost Urien Timber, Mohamed Kudus, they've lost Edson Alvarez. They've all gone to play in the Premier League. Mark Overmars was their director of football. He He was forced out after being... Just caught sending inappropriate messages to female staff members. Edwin van der Sar had to step down as CEO because uh, of a, an illness he, he was suffering from. And the whole club's a mess, you know, because they've gone in space of four years, been basically a kick of a ball away from being in a Champions League final to being 14th in the table, albeit at an early stage of the season and not in the Champions League at all. So... While the actions of the Ajax fans are uh, inexcusable, they are, I suppose, their anger is understandable. Alan says, Sid, you're to blame for Bournemouth's bad start to the season, apparently. I hope you feel good about um, yourself. Funny enough, I, totally by chance, I, I stumbled across someone from, from Bournemouth at, uh, at the Rye Cano game at the weekend. And and looking at the results, I said, oh, doesn't look like it's going too well for, for Andoni Adola. And he said, well, they're actually playing quite good football. It's not quite happened yet. It's been a difficult start against big teams. And, and the, the, he seemed quite positive 
about the way that they're playing and and, and the the direction they're heading in. So so if they start playing well again, will it still be my fault? Oh yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> you're, you're responsible for whatever happens Good. to Bournemouth for the rest of time. <laughs> they they had better. <laughs> uh, a couple of other bits that we we forgot to mention yesterday and should have done. Uh, the Sheffield United fans paying tribute to Maddie Cusack, um, uh, the Sheffield United player who passed away on Wednesday last week at just 27. Uh, she wore the number eight shirt, so fans applauded in the eighth minute. Um, and far less importantly, um, but we referred yesterday to the uh, Sheffield United fan uh, reading a book at 7-0 down. The camera's cut to this lady reading a book. And uh, Nathan Hemingham, who I think is a local journalist, uh, tweeted regarding the lady pictured reading a book during the game yesterday she comes every week with her blind husband and his guide dog they pick up a blind commentary's headset he listens to the game she has no interest in the match and reads during it so it is a story of true love and uh it is uh, a lovely story so is it how does he know has he has he asked her what she's reading is that is that the point <laughs> well i mean the uh the camera's picked up the book of course what um, was it? That's 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 my point. What was it? He said, "Story of true love." It could be a detective. It could be anything. Well, no, the story of true love is. Oh, I know that is her going. Oh, I know isn't that. It? Max, it's not Max, a, it's, theory, me. Sorry, yeah. that'll teach me for no, trying to be okay. a smartass. And, and yeah, it, well, yeah, absolutely. In your presence, Shut anyway. Up. In your presence, you should, in your you should presence, have fucked off after the end of part one. <laughs> is what you should have done. <laughs> Does the dog take an interest in the football? <laughs> Don't know. I've no, I've no, I've no knowledge of that. But I'll find out more. And finally, PYL says about the last pod, I showed my wife a picture of Barry Glendening. She said he was a good-looking man, above average. And uh, we're both oil paintings, he says. So that's that. Okay. You aren't average, Barry. Good to know. <laughs> All right, that'll do for today. Uh, thank you, Philippe. Thank you very much, Max. Thanks, Baz. Thank you. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks. Thanks, Sid. Thanks, Max. Sorry, I didn't get your joke. I wasn't concentrating. It was the end of the podcast, wasn't it? Uh, Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. This is The Guardian.